Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Jarrell Mason, a.k.a. J. Mace, and welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. With me right now, I have a gentleman who is a native of the volunteer state of Tennessee. He is one of the many people responsible for getting the museum for the late, great Tina Turner done out in Brownsville, Tennessee, which is about a little less than 30 minutes from the hometown of Nutbush, where Tina Turner was raised. It's just a stone's throw. So we're going to get into all of that, Miss Turner's legacy, and talk about his career in radio and education. I was in both of those careers myself. So we're going to have a good time chatting with my good friend, Mr. Keith Gambill. Mr. Gambill, welcome to Beyond the Album Cover, sir. How are you? I'm fine and glad to be here, Jarrell. Thanks for having me on this time. No problem. And I appreciate Rashawn Chisholm, a.k.a. the professor of the Professional's Lounge, for linking us up and uh, making this interview happen. What's up, Rashawn? I appreciate it. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. Tell the people a little bit about yourself and how you ended up in the radio business first. Okay. Well, I'm a native of Brownsville, Tennessee. That's in Haywood County. That's the county seat of where... You know, Haywood County's county seat is Brownsville. Nutbush is 10 miles outside of Brownsville. I was born and raised there. Um, my childhood ambition was to be a disc jockey. All I ever wanted to really do was to be on the radio. So um, when I graduated from high school, I went off to Memphis State University, and um, I studied broadcasting, communication, radio, TV, and theater arts. And I got a call when I was 18 from the guy that owned the radio station. He says, would you like to come up and do a weekend show? And so that's how I got started in radio. It was interesting, the show that I was doing at that time, which I can tell you more about uh, whenever you'd like for me to. Go ahead. Okay. Well, back then, Brownsville Radio Station played country music. They did a show called Swap Shop where they call in and do, you know, items that people buy them and so forth. And they had a show on Friday and Saturday night called The Soul Show. And this is where, you know, they play rhythm and blues. Well, I wanted to play rhythm and blues. And at that time in the mid 80s in Brownsville, there weren't many people of my shade of color that had done that in that town. But that's what I wanted to do. And so um, I'd grown to love R&B music as a three-year-old child listening to the Supremes. My aunt had bought me all these records and everything. So I said to myself um, as a young boy, I want to do that. I want to be on the air and I want to play R&B because it was exciting back then. You know, we had the Jackson 5. We had all of these blossoming artists coming through the 70s with a real, real sound of R&B. So it came true. I got to do the Soul Show. Now, how I got into Tina is what I can get into uh, whenever you want me to, unless you want me to talk more about my background in Brownsville. All right. So um, just want to go into the radio thing for a little bit for people. Like I stated earlier, I was in radio myself. So you mentioned the show Swap Shop. Well, at the radio station where I used to work at in North Carolina, we called it Tradio, where we have people call in and they'll say, hey, I'm selling this for this much. 
or I want to buy this for this much. And they would call in and it almost kind of sounded like the station that you were working on at the time. You said they were primarily a country format, but on weekends they would have a specialty show. Now that was common back in the 70s, 80s and further back where a station would be formatted for a particular genre during the day and maybe yeah. would do specialty programming on weekends only if your station wasn't fully dedicated to a specific format. Right. And that soul show, they did it on Friday night, like from 10 to midnight and Saturday, 10 to midnight. And the way I got started with the radio station, um, this girl was doing a remote up at a Sonic drive-in and I was just riding around. I got out of the car and walked up to her and introduced myself. I was about 18 years old. And she started letting me come out and watch her show in the studio, which she really wasn't supposed to do. And sometimes she'd sneak and let me do the weather forecast. And so I, I just, it just got all in my blood and, you know, something I wanted to do ever since I was a small boy. Yeah, I remember those days running board out for remotes. Um, when you're starting on the ground floor and radio, at least back in the time when we came in, you pretty much got your start running the board for remotes. If you had syndicated shows running, they needed somebody to come in. Local high school sports, you would run. And maybe you would be a swing person on a certain station if a jock called out. Right. And, you know, back then we had to put the actual vinyl on the turntable. So we didn't have a countdown clock telling us how many seconds that we had to, to intro the song or anything. We had to know the music. So actually, we had to buy our own music. The station didn't buy it. So I spent out of my own pocket and I get the music in Memphis and take it back home 60 miles to Brownsville and put it on the radio. And so, you know, queuing up a record and man, that's what a DJ used to be on there. You didn't have a countdown clock. You had to know the intro. So the knowledge level that DJs had back then, not knocking what they've got today. Um, it's a whole lot. It's a whole lot that we had to do. So you really had to know how to hit that post. Oh, yeah. You had to splice your commercials. You'd have to take your tape, you know, and splice, cut the tape, actual tape. The, the commercials were on cartridges. There wasn't all this computerized stuff. It was more of the DJ ad-libbing, knowing what to do and all of that. Thank God I bypassed the car era because I would have messed up plenty of commercials cutting in the production <laughs> studio because you really had to have a steady hand with that blade. And if you cut the wrong part of the tape, you were through. And it was a life. long process for maybe one or two edits where you could do with a couple of clicks and a delete in the computer. But back then, you had to load it up onto the reel. You had to use the bulk eraser to erase your cart because... Yep like the process of pre-saving television shows you would wipe the carts because you had to reuse it and then mm -hmm. cut it and it was a whole lot of work that you really had to do in the analog days and like when you what it would be like you wouldn't just be sitting there looking at a clock you'd be queuing this record up on the left queuing this record up on the right grabbing five or six carts out of a rack that's rolling sticking them in the machine some of them are supposed to trip the other one to play, and some of them wouldn't trip. So you'd have to sit there with your hand on the button. You'd be answering the phone, you know, going to the AP machine, pulling off the news. It was just, you were the whole nine yards, the DJ was. Yeah, that was when you all were getting presses off the wire. Now, at this time, was the station 
full 24 hours where you had jocks coming in 24-7 or was it parts of the day where it was automated and you had that cart carousel rolling and hoping and praying that the engineer didn't get that late night call saying that the cart carousel tapped out? Uh, we had all, all kind of problems with that happening and it was just a cut off at midnight station seven days a week. Oh, back in the days when you signed off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, back when you used to get that message where they'd be like, station www signing off for another broadcast day. Then they'll give you the kilowatts and mm -hmm. city of license and the seal of good practice and the national anthem, and then it'll be dead. But we were bad boys. Sometimes me and the other guy and girl that did the show, we'd stay on a little after 12 because we knew the owner was asleep. But he's not listening, I don't think so. <laughs> but I want to ask you this. Did y'all have a red phone in the booth? No red phone now that, that I remember. Yeah. <laughs> if, if, if you worked in radio, you know about that red phone, and you knew only one person had access to that phone, and it wasn't to call you and say, hey, how you doing? I've heard that talked about, but I don't remember that we had one right there where I was. But I've yeah. heard that talked about. Yeah, because I remember hearing from some older radio friends that I knew, they were saying that some PDs and GMs were so obsessed with their station that they would literally call the red phone almost every hour on the hour or be in their office constantly monitoring the station, listening for the jocks breaks, making sure that they don't go a minute past the talk break, make sure they hit the beds at the appropriate time, and just mm -hmm. really sticklers for being a tight formatted station. Exactly. Yeah, those those were the days. I mean, and that, of course, all that changed when it become computerized and automated. Uh, I haven't been in the studio since then, so I, I moved on from Brownsville Radio and went to another station. And what station was that? Did did you move to? I went to Jackson, Tennessee, and worked for. You may have heard of Denise Lasalle, Queen of the Blues. Of course. Super Wolf. James Superwolf, her husband, they owned a station called Kicks 96 WFKX. It was an urban station. I did a seven to midnight show for about three or four years, late 80s to early 90s. That was my last stint. Wow. In radio. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because when I was looking up prior to the interview, I was looking up that the current format for 96 Kicks is Urban AC. So was it Urban AC at the time when you were at the station or was it another format and then later flipped? It was Urban. I think that yeah, AC was included in it. It was Urban. Okay. It was the only Urban station in Jackson at that time. It was just the only one, you know, that was Urban. Wow. And how far is Memphis from Jackson? About 90 miles. 90 miles, so I'm sure probably right around that area, you probably couldn't pick up K97 or any other Memphis stations because it was kind of like on the fringe of the Memphis right. market. You can get it, some people can get it in Jackson and some some could. So it depend, depended on where you were at or how you had the boom box or the radio set in the house and the antenna set all the way up with some foil. Yeah, <laughs> yes, right. that's right. Yes, but that was Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was saying this was back in the days before digital tuning, where you really had to be a skilled, handed person to make sure that that position on that dial was perfect. The antenna was up at just at the right spot. And you pretty much had clear reception, depending on where you were at. 
Now, I'm curious to know, since Memphis was about maybe 90 miles or so from right around Brownsville, were you influenced heavy at all by anything that was coming out of Stax? Not really, because when I was listening to music, it was the early 70s, late 60s. And the way I got into the music was my aunt would go in Brownsville to a record store called Hess Record Shop. It's just a one-man record store, you know. And she would buy the Supreme albums, bring them home, put them on the old stereo, get up and dance. And from there, I wanted the Jackson 5. And so what I was doing is I would go in the local record shop, Mr. Hess's record shop at that time. I couldn't have been more than five, six years old. My grandmother would drive me up. I'd go in there and I'd say, Mr. Hess, the Jacksons have out a new song. I haven't heard of it. You know, I said, oh, yeah, I've heard it on this station or whatever. You need to order that. So he would order the record. It would come in and he would pick me up and hold me up and I'd go up to the top shelf and place the records up there on the on the shelf. So that's how I got rolling into rhythm and blues music and enjoying it so much. And I kept up with it. Um, I kept up with it. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. So pretty much you were heavy Motown, but it should not be understated people, the influence of stats records and R&B. Because when I went to Memphis a couple of years ago for the vacation, I made sure to tell my wife, we are going to go <laughs> to the Stax Museum. So we yeah. ended up going there, going to the Rock and Soul Museum. And then we actually made a visit to Reverend Al Green's church. And lucky enough, he was there that Sunday and preached. And I was trying my oh. hardest not to fanboy in the front row of the church. Yeah, <laughs> I hear you. I've been to Stax before. It's incredible. Incredible experience. Yeah, it definitely is, especially seeing Isaac Hayes' Cadillac and Cadillac. all of the memorabilia and just knowing the legacy of Stacks and of Memphis in general, you know, because with WDIA, Rufus Thomas, Carla Thomas, B.B. King, and of course Sun Records with Elvis and everything, Sam Phillips and everybody dead out of there and, you know, what was later to come with 3-6 Mafia and what they're doing, what they did for hip-hop in Memphis, 8-Ball and MJG, and just how Memphis, we can make so many direct connections to hip-hop, rock, soul, R&B, and also wrestling connection, too, because, oh, yeah. you know, you got your Great Smoky Mountain Wrestling, which was like East Tennessee, Western North Carolina. Then Memphis, they had its own wrestling association going on, and I believe Jeff Jarrett's dad ran yeah. that. And this was, of course, back in the days when wrestling was territorial, where all the different regions of the country had their own territories. And then, of mm -hmm. course, Vince McMahon came in and said, hey, we're going to take it from regional to national. And that was when WWE and everything else came after that exploded. Exactly. You're right. Right. So let's talk about really quick. Uh, you mentioned that you went to Memphis State University, now University of Memphis. Um, what was it like going there? And um, tell me about your experience going there. Well, you know, I thought I was in the big city and I was because I'd never been out of Brownsville. So um, I really enjoyed going to Memphis State. It was 1982 to 86. And that's when I met, so to speak, my life sort of intersected with Tina's which I can get into that at any time you're ready. Go ahead. Okay. So 
when I was 16 years old in Brownsville, I was a sophomore and I was working for a summer youth program called Rabies Control, where we, where we would check for vaccination. And we were in Nutbush and we walked in this man's house. I didn't know who it was till later on. And I asked him, you know, to see his vaccination papers. And I saw this lady's picture on the table. She had long flowing black hair, high cheekbones, pretty skin. And I, I said, uh, who is that lady? And he said, oh, that's my, that's my cousin, Tina Turner. Well, it didn't register with me because I didn't, I'd heard her name mentioned at that time, but it would be four years later when I was 20, driving around on the Memphis State campus and the DJ was playing Let's Stay Together. And the song got to the end and he said, that's Tina Turner from Brownsville, Tennessee. I said, wait a minute, that's the lady whose picture I saw in her first cousin's house, the late Joe Melvin Curry. And then I said, wow, we got a famous person from Brownsville and I'm gonna get to go home and play the music on the radio. And this feeling come over me like I was the most excited thing in you know, the planet. So I would go out to Cat's record store in Memphis and buy the vinyl Private Dancer album, buy all of her 12 inches, take them back home to Brownsville, plop them on the air. And that's where things started rolling. And the things I heard in my ear from the community um, are good and bad. Would you like for me to share some of those in a minute? Yeah, and I want to make this point really quick. You mentioned the Private Dancer album and how prior to that album, I believe Tina was doing pretty much kind of like the indie golden oldie circuit, doing some of the hits that she did when she was with Ike. And then it wasn't until she linked up with uh, Martin Ware and his partner of BF. Uh, Martin Ware was formerly of Human League and Heaven 17, and they were responsible for the covers of Ball of Confusion and Let's Stay Together, and how mm -hmm. it kind of incorporated what was new at the time, the synth pop new wave movement that was going on in the UK, and mm -hmm. smartly enough, her manager said, no, we're not going to take her to a US label and say, this is Tina Turner. We're just going to follow the wave that's going on in the UK, and then just follow Duran Duran Adam Ant and all of those acts that was coming over to America, getting played on MTV, and we're just going to ride that and show that, hey, this is already moving units in the UK, and because everything coming out of there is white hot at the time, we're just going to ride that wave and pretty much make the US labels want to do business with us. That's right. That's right. So I, uh, I got you. A, I got a funny story for you, real quick, before okay. um, you go into your point. Um, I was looking up a story about um, Martin Ware because he was reflecting on Tina Turner and the making of that, you know, since her passing, and how originally the Ball of Confusion cover was supposed to have been for Soul Brother Number One, Godfather of Soul, the hardest working man in show business, the late great right. James Brown. But what ended up happening was at the eleventh hour, he said. I want points on the whole album, not just the song. And that just mm -hmm. nixed that, and that's how they ended up getting uh, Tina on the project. I didn't know that. That's an interesting fact. Yeah, I didn't know that either. And for those of you that don't know, <laughs> music industry lingo, points 
are valuable. And if you get points on an album, you're mm -hmm. going to eat good, especially if the album is a big hit. It's like making money while you sleep, just like Michael Jordan is doing yeah. forever in perpetuity because of those shoes. Now you go ahead and make your point. Yeah, well, uh, to go on and tell you the whole story, I just have to I have to tell it the way it is. You know, I, I want your listeners to hear it all. So when I was there in Brownsville in 82 playing her music, I, my first thought was everybody's going to be very excited that I'm playing Tina on the R&B show, this, what it was called, the Soul Show. Well, I would get calls, you know, and some people would request uh, her songs and make positive comments. And then I'd get a lot of people calling, hey, man, you know, take her off. We want to hear Freddie Jackson, man. You know, me and my lady doing this and, you know, uh, she ain't hitting on, she ain't bumping, you know, she ain't hit, she's singing this rock music and, you know, she's okay. Okay, so I was getting some of that in one ear and it was a lot worse I was getting a lot in the other ear, racial stuff, okay? I was getting all these comments coming in from the community, and I would say maybe 30% were positive and 70% were negative. And this is from all backgrounds of people that live in that you know town that would call me. So something on the inside said, Keith, get in your car. Go around and drive in the county and see if there's any sign or anything up that says Tina Turner was even from here. I did that. Didn't see anything. I said, hmm, I'm going to do something to change that. And fire lit in me. And the more they people would talk about her or put her down, which they did, you know, and I can tell you some of the things they said, which weren't very nice. And there were some positives. Don't get me wrong. But it was that negative that I heard that made me sort of stand up in her place and say, she's going to be honored in this town no matter what. And so I became what was like, to some people, obsessed with it. Okay. And that's fine, you know, that people thought of it that way. I had to take it and push it and push it hard to keep her name out there. It took me nine years from 84 to 93 to get the first festival started. And I wasn't the only one that helped. But what I'm trying to say, uh, Jarrell, it wasn't a cakewalk from 84 to 93. There was lots of people that didn't want Tina to be honored. Okay? Wow. I had the Atlanta Journal-Constitution come to town. I had other newspapers come to town. And they would ask the leaders, you know, what's the problem? And, of course, they would give them their reasons. But I was determined, you know, with, even without her permission, without the head people's position in the town, something was going to be done to honor Tina. And that took place in 1993. It took me nine years. But I kept her name out in front of the community. Played those songs despite... People wanting to hear, you know, more R&B music, which hers was R&B, but you get my point. Some of it, like Show Some Respect on the album and some of the, you know, Steel Claw, that's rock and roll. All right, so Tina was, she was not going to be put in a box, okay, for either any segment of society. She was going to stay true to her art form. 
I fed off of her music. I fed off of her lyrics. Uh, it became more than just being a fan. It became, I'm fighting against a lot of isms in right. the town. Right, and being from the South, I know all about those isms all yeah. too well. And if, and as you and I know, the music industry, of course, you know, race records, R&B, soul, look at Little Richard doing Tutti Frutti, Pat Boone covering it, Elvis did Hound Dog, it was originally done, I believe, Big Mama Thornton, and of course, as you and I know, we like to put everything in boxes. Mm -hmm. You can't mm -hmm. cross this line. You got to be here. You can't go there. And Tina, she identified primarily on the rock side because if you listen to her work and then the work that she and Ike did, it was very rock heavy. Then, of course, them later working on with Phil Spector on River Deep Mountain High. I'm sure those are records that got played on Top 40 AM and really the soul stations like, mm, this ain't black enough for us. I'm just going to go ahead and call it like I call it. But yeah. as you know, with the music industry, you know, we got to put you in this box. And if you go outside of that, mm -hmm. something is wrong with that. Just like how when Whitney Houston came out, you know, not a lot of people identified her as pure R&B because Clive Davis's marketing strategy was we're going to appeal her to the pop audience and then when she got booed at the 87 soul train music awards that was when clive knew like okay we're gonna have to win back the r&b audience and that's why he went and got la and babyface to do her i'm your baby tonight album in 89 mm -hmm. yes um you know you make some very good points and connections there with what i was saying and all of that goes in, in the same area um of course, she was R&B to the extent with What's Love Got to Do With It, you know, Better Be Good to Me. But it's gradually leaving from that, you know, into rock and, and rock. She had rock on that album, Steel Claw. Uh, she had rock on Break Every Rule. She had R&B on it. She charted, you know. But the fact is, she was ultimately on the edge and she would not be boxed in. And just what you said, you know, where do we put her? Where do we put this song? It's not what they would say, black enough. It's not white enough. And it was just ridiculous to me because uh, she was an artist who was unique and would not deviate from being herself, which turned out the way it did. Right. Right. And you mentioned 1993 was when the festival took place. And I believe that was the same year when What's Love Got to Do With It came out and that was based on the book i believe it was the book was titled i tina and it was written by kurt loader yes people that mm -hmm. kurt loader before he went to mtv he was over at rolling stone wrote that book and then the book got adapted into what's love got to do with it and then it later launched the careers of angela bassett and of course lawrence fishburne and i was wondering was miss turner aware of what was going on with what you were doing? Did you end up getting an endorsement for either her directly or someone within the camp? Yes, what happened is I met a lady named Sharon Norris who owned her own company called Nutbush Heritage Productions around 1992. She had her own business, a for-profit business. We got together and we got this school in Nutbush behind the gin, not the school she went to, another school. Painted it, cleaned it up, we set up flat book, flatbed 
trailers as music stages. We had vendors, live entertainment. We had our own Tina that dressed up and did a show. We had a makeshift museum where we put our things together and had a museum. And Tina was aware of it because Sharon had informed her and she said she was all right with us doing it. I didn't hear that from her, but I was told that by Sharon. And Sharon, I, I know that she got in touch with her. But it took nine years before it happened. And I stood in some places similar to what Tina stood in looking around. And when I would hear the song like Break Every Rule, it was like I was breaking some rules too. And uh, I pushed and pushed. And in 93, we had the first one in Nutbush in that school. We had like 500 people. And the sheriff had to come out in direct traffic, which Nutbush is like 50 to 150 people. And it's an unincorporated town. We kept having festivals in the 90s, 94, 95, 97, 98. And I don't want to jump too far without you jumping in, but I'm chronologically building, building up to the museum coming to Brownsville. I'm giving you all the pre-stuff before her school was turned into a museum. So these festivals were kind of like the seeds that later led to what is now the museum, correct? Exactly. And they were put together by myself and Sharon Doyle Norris. And the, you know, the chamber wasn't involved. The mayor, no, none of the townspeople were directly involved in, in doing this. It was a grassroots thing. We were determined, and we actually put the first sign in the ground that said Nutbush, Tennessee, home of Tina Turner. The sign that's hanging over the Nutbush store was put up by Sharon, who I work with. It's still hanging on top of the Nutbush store. So we felt like she needed her flowers in 93. We didn't want to wait till now. So we did that. We did that. Yeah, I say this all the time, you know, you give people their flowers while they're here. And you mentioned that it was all grassroots, nobody from the city or any other big wigs backing. How did you all fund the project? Was it a lot of crowdsourcing, a lot of angel investments as far as raising funds? Well, Sharon had her own business and she she had some money, you know, she owned property in Nutbush. She's from there. I took some of my own money and laminated posters and help pay for some dis display cases and paint. It was just totally us, you know, totally us. Definitely DIY, do it yourself. Yeah, we had a few people come and help us, you know, volunteering that we knew. But we were just, we just said, we're just going to do the darn thing, you know. We're just going to do it, and here it is. You know, we're going to honor somebody. And we're not going to listen to all you people telling us we got to do this, we got to wait on this, and all of that. And I was wondering, before she uh, ended up becoming a Swiss citizen and living in Switzerland until her passing, did she ever come back to Nutbush or the surrounding areas, or was it more of like, mm, doesn't really come back as much, and you may not even hear if she's in town? It's rumored that she came back in the early 80s. Uh, I can't prove it. It's rumored. And then it's uh, rumored that 
she came back in the mid 2000s but i can't prove it so i i can't answer that i can say probably as far as i know she hasn't but i've heard family members and people say she snuck back so mm. take it can't, can't take confirm it nor deny all right <laughs> i mean it's, you know it's like Somebody said they saw a limousine pull up one day out there in Nutbush. It was a long white limousine, and they speculated it was her. So, yep. So it's all hearsay at that point. Just like when you have your local 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 sitting out at the corner store early on Saturday mornings, right after they go get that biscuit from Hardy's, sitting around <laughs> shooting the breeze, and like if you're from the south. You know how Hardy's, Hardy's is on Saturday mornings with uh -huh. the senior crowd. And they're like, hey, I heard Tina Turner came to so-and-so. No, you yeah. didn't. Damn. Man, <laughs> yes, I did. Why are you sitting there drinking your knee-high soda out of a glass and eating a moon pie? Yeah. And then everybody in Browns, a lot of folks, oh, she's my cousin. Oh, I went. she went to school with my mama. Oh, I know her. I know Tina. Oh, yes, yeah, she was, used to do that. And then when you get to talking to them, they can't tell you hardly anything else so you question you know the validity of some of that yeah it's like one big game of telephone where everything gets <laughs> lost into translation and then you know uh -huh. with um where were you when you got the news that she passed don't let me forget to jump back to 99 in a minute but I'm okay gonna we're go gonna go there you. we're gonna go back to that after this okay I'm a teacher. The last day of school was Wednesday, May 25th, I believe. Uh, we had a half a day of school. That morning on my way to work, I posted Nutbush City Limits by Tina on YouTube. And I put a caption above it. And it said, take me to 19 one more time. Well, I didn't think anything about it because I post Tina all the time. I played it, you know, jamming in the car, feeling good, last day of school. And she probably had passed in Switzerland because time is different, but I didn't know. I got home. It's about 2.37 p.m. Central. Sitting at, sitting at this table, I had a salad, getting ready to eat it. Phone rang. Family member. Uh, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm okay. What's up? Uh, have you heard? I said, heard what? Tina Turner passed away. So that's how I got the news. And I was like, I can't, it was just like the world started coming in on me. And I was like, oh, I want to reach out there and I'm trying to find out, you know, when it happened, how it happened. Um, phone messages started coming in from people that have uh, been members of my fan club on Facebook that have followed me for 39 years that I have self-promoted, Tina. It was overwhelming. And it kept me busy for like a whole week just trying to go back and forth and keep up with everything. It was sad and unexpected. And unexpected so quickly. Yeah, yeah, it was sad when I heard the news and then, of course, all the tributes began to pour in from celebrities and, you know, well, fans of hers. And I believe my wife was telling me last week, um, Oprah was on CBS this morning and was talking about, I guess her and Tina Turner became close after Oprah told her when she initially interviewed Tina Turner that, you know, I was a fan of yours and, you know, they became really close and Oprah was saying how, you know, she was really going through some things 
towards the end. And I was surprised at how close to the death everybody around her circle kept what was going on, you know, with her. Because once she left to go to Switzerland, it was where she pretty much went off grid and that, you know, she was really, you know, privately, you know, going through some things. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you're bringing up thoughts as you speak. And one of them that you brought up is I want people to understand that for many years, I was the only source of news about Tina Turner in that county. I would put articles in the newspaper. So I just kept it up as a hobby. I did it on the radio when Facebook came on. I post Tina. I give Tina news. That's just a part of me. And uh, it hit me hard. Uh, I didn't expect it to happen so quickly. You know, she had been sick a very long time. But uh, it was it was a shock. And we can see the magnitude of what she left very clearly. It's like hardly no other. Yeah, and you could make a lineage from all the women that came after because, you know, if you look at Beyonce, her stage show, her stage presence, very much she went to the school of Tina mm -hmm. and paid That's homage right. to her at the Kennedy Center Honors when Tina got honored. And I think she did a performance with her at the Grammys. And, you know, that's the one thing about Beyonce and a lot of acts like her that have appreciation for those who paved the way for them and they're standing on their shoulders to have their success. And it was glad to see that everybody, you know, ended up showing much love and respect to her, you know, while she was here, you know, especially mm -hmm. with that Tina doc that came out two years ago. And I believe that was her last U.S. public appearance. And I was surprised that she agreed to do it, you know, given what I was mentioning earlier about her being very private, prior to her passing once she went over to Switzerland living her life with her husband and how everything you know with Ike and what's love got to do with it that I was thinking that you know I don't want my stuff to be put out there again because it may rehash you know some of the right. things you know that I went through so I was surprised that um she agreed to do that documentary it was well done and then of course mm -hmm. the, the Tina Broadway musical very very well done as well from the clips that I did see very smart businesswoman. She really had everything situated, selling her music catalog to BMG. The musical, I was there in 2019 when she was there that opening night, and I got to see her from very close up. And she didn't look well at all. You know, she looked wonderful, but she could tell she was sick and had been through quite a bit. That was the last time I saw her. Mm. Yeah, wow. Lots of memories. Yeah, let's flash back to 1999. Okay. In 1999, uh, there was an organization in Jackson, Tennessee called the Southwest Tennessee Tourism Agency. They wanted a display along with the state of Tennessee to go in the rest stop between Jackson and Brownsville. So Sharon and I worked together and put a display together in a glass case, a 45 of Nutbush and a picture of hers that hung in that rest stop. Then in 99, a Western Sizzling Steakhouse uh, went out of business, and the city of Brownsville made it into the West Tennessee Delta Heritage Center. And that display that we hung in that rest stop moved to the Heritage Center. And 
became the first display that was hanging there about Tina. So let's say from 1999 to 2012, not much happened with me. Uh, uh, Tina came back on tour in 2000. I went and saw that. She came back in 2008 with her 50th anniversary tour. Saw that. And then I was like, okay, you know, that's pretty much it as far as music and touring. 2012 came, City of Brownsville announces that the school, Flag Grove, the actual school, the property owners were going to donate it to the City of Brownsville and move it from Nutbush to the Heritage Center. And it would become, you know, refurbished, remodeled, and become the Tina Turner Museum. And I was like, yes, you know, I didn't actually spearhead that, but I saw that vision up here and many other visions. I told people back then, you know, one day there'll be a museum. What they do? A lot of them laughed at me, a lot of them agreed with me. But I said, just watch, you know, it's coming. And it came in 2014, we had the grand opening. And she was not there, but she gave a speech to us on tape. And I was very well pleased to, to know that she made herself a museum and donated, you know, a lot of her things there. Yeah, and, and you answered my question right there. I was gonna ask, did she donate any memorabilia from her personal collection towards the museum or were most of it uh, replicas? What she did, most of everything you'll see in there is from the 2008-09 tour. Her costumes are from there. There's really not anything in there from any other period of her career except for the 2008-09 uh, costumes. But it's very uh, centered around that time period. There are some albums, uh, gold albums in there of What's Love and Private Dancer, but it's like 70%, you know, 08, 09 things, and she donated. And she gave some money. I don't know how much, but uh, the lady told me that it's over it, that she did donate some money toward it. Yeah, that's great. And it's funny that you mentioned Western Sizzling and how it turned into the museum. If you're from the South, we would turn a defunct business into something else. What was a piece of it today will be a saving and loans company. What yes. was a hardware store will turn into your Dollar General tomorrow. And if you live <laughs> in the South, there's a Dollar General just like a Baptist church on every corner. That's right. Uh, by the way, what you're looking at behind me, you may not can see it all, but every February at the school during Black History Month, they always ask me to do the Tina part. So I put this poster together. And it has two of her quotes back there. So I put it up there as a backdrop for the interview today. Nice. And of course, June is Black Music Month and how, you know, like we mentioned earlier in the interview, how Black music is the cornerstone of, you know, American music, even a genre that we don't really associate with Black people as country. Black people has played an important role in country because if you go back to the history of the Appalachian Mountains and the surrounding areas and how D. Ford Bailey was one of the first Blacks to play at Grand Ole Opry. And now you have the likes of Reese Palmer, Mickey Guyton, Kane mm. Brown, uh, Jimmy Allen, you, you know, of course, and yeah. the, late, the late Charlie Pride. You know, oh, yeah. All those guys are standing on his shoulders and those that came before him to where, you know, country 
it's just not looked at as your grandma's granddaddy's country anymore, where it's just Loretta Lynn, Dolly, Hank Williams Sr., Tanya Tucker, what we would consider, you know, country country. And now country is mixing in pop, rap, R&B, and it's yeah. great to see those lines being blurred now. Yeah, I mean, when you get into talking about categorizing music, a lot of the artists like Diana Ross, Tina, they're more popular overseas than they are here. And they had to leave later in their career, so to speak, not maybe physically, but some physically, to get airplay and to get, you know, people to come to their concerts and everything. Diana's been out on, on tour, but she has primarily been overseas and in some just major cities along the coast here in the U.S. It's very sad to me to see some of the legends get shifted around like that. And then they don't get all of their goodies while they're here. Yeah, you know? I, I agree, you know, because, you know, overseas, they have a greater appreciation and respect for the artists, the culture, because a lot of those acts from England, like the Rolling Stones, Beatles, Boy George, George Michael, all mention how they grew up listening to U.S. R&B, and they're pretty much paying homage to that style with their appearance and their sound. Right. So, you know, Tina just didn't fit the, she, she wouldn't fit in anybody's box. And look how far she got by not fitting in anybody's box. If she had limited herself to just R&B or just one genre, she wouldn't have been what she is today. She followed her heart. Right. Stay and true it, to her, her path. Yep, and at the end of the day, the hard one, because if the, you look at with social media and the internet, how it's pretty much shrunk the world, but it also made it easier to where when you find a niche, you can pretty much just market to that niche and make a mm -hmm. comfortable living doing that. Almost kind of like how I mentioned earlier when the wrestling territories were regional, it kind of feels like that now to where you don't have to appeal to the mainstream in order to survive anymore. You could just appeal to whoever your base is and just go with that. Right. And so every year they have the Tina Turner Heritage Days out at the museum. That's uh, the third or fourth weekend in September. And um, have you heard they're going to have a museum, her house in Switzerland? They're going to oh, turn that into a museum. Oh, wow. That, that'll be something that they're going to turn her house into the into a museum almost kind of like how they did Paisley Park after Prince passed. Yeah. And the city of Brownsville is talking about putting up a statue in honor of Tina and if I may I want to show you the front page of the Brownsville newspaper, Brownsville, Tennessee. And she made the front page. Wow. Tina and I've been simply the best. in Brownsville all my life. And I and I'll just be honest with you. I'm I'm happy to see her on the front page, but I wish she'd gotten some bigger articles while she was living on the front page. Yeah, that that's how it goes. You know, most times, kind of like how when you see people at somebody's funeral or repast, where it's great to see you, but sad for the circumstances in which we had to uh, see each other. Now I want to deviate really quick um, and go back to Memphis State for a minute. 
Yeah. Um, Memphis State, now University of Memphis, basketball, mm -hmm. very well known. Um, of course, you have, you know, Penny Hardaway, who's current coach, played ball at Memphis State when it was Memphis State. And then you had Coach Calipari for a minute, and he brought Derrick <laughs> Rose and yep. those guys, and they made that run to the championship game in 08 before they lost to Kansas. And then uh, DeWan Wagner and a lot of other guys that will later become stars in the NBA. Um, what do you think it is about University of Memphis and basketball that pretty much brings that city, you know, together? Because you wouldn't think basketball and Tennessee would go together because with it being the South, you would think football would be more dominant in Tennessee. That's a tough one to answer, except to just say, it's a basketball town. It's the only way I could answer that. Uh, and it just brings people together. It's, it is weird. It is strange, like you're saying, but it's the electricity, the excitement, and, you know, it's just one of those things. That's the only way I can explain that. Yeah, it's definitely one of, one of those things indeed in how, you know, the Grizzlies now end up taking on – that persona, and we're hoping that John Morant can get himself together and straighten out with all of his stuff that he has going on. So prayers up to John so that he can get himself right. But how before the Grizzlies came, you really wouldn't think of basketball in Memphis. But once they came from Vancouver to Memphis, the city just embraced them and the whole grit and grind era with Tony Allen, Zach Randolph, and how and all of those yeah. guys from from that era and how now of course with john those guys they're pretty much carrying on that spirit of that that group and pretty much staking their own identity but i want to touch on this um how did you end up going into education from broadcasting i'm just curious to know was it where you're like okay. you saw automation coming and you had enough or you just wanted a career change uh, when I was uh, in the late 80s on the radio in Brownsville, my cousin was a principal at the elementary school, and they would need a sub every now and then, so they'd call me quite often. And about the mid-90s, when I was um, getting ready to depart radio, my mother had talked with me about uh, life and about what was coming up in the future, and she said, you know, this jockey has to be willing to move all over the United States and eventually you're going to get too old and you know you're going to play out so you need something else that you can lean on that you like and I didn't just buy that because she was pushing it I thought about it and I said okay I do like teaching I do like what I was doing at the time and still do mostly um I gotta go ha ha right there <laughs> okay but um I pushed on and decided I'd make a career out of it. So I went back to University of Memphis and got my master's in education and started teaching. Now, the way I got the job was, of course, having the degree. But they were having a Black history program at Lauderdale Middle School in Lauderdale County, which is next to Haywood. Sharon, the lady I worked with that I was telling you about, we were given speeches. She was going to give a speech about you know, something, the mayor of Henning, where Alex Haley was from, was giving a speech. They had me on the program to give a speech about Tina. Got through with the speech. The principal walked up and says, 
when you get through, you know, graduating, I'm going to hire you. So just throwing that in, it's like Tina always had a little, had a little, we had a little connection going like that. So that's how I got into education. What was that first year like? Because I can tell you, my first year stepping into that classroom, I was like, I don't know what I am doing, especially <laughs> when you get your IEP caseload. Oh my goodness! You said you said the three letters there, didn't you? IEP. -E <laughs> yes, and if you don't know what IEP is, that is individualized education. I get confused on the P. Is it program or plan? Individual uh, plan, I believe. Yeah, I think it's plan too, and it is pretty much stating that your kid, if they are in uh, special education, they have a right to FAPE, which is free, appropriate public education. And mm -hmm. this is the former teacher talking to y'all out there in podcast right. land and viewing land. You, I'm pointing at you, parents, you are the biggest advocate for your children. If That's there's right. anything wrong with your IEP, you can request a meeting at any time with the IEP team. You don't have to wait until your child's annual or until their reevaluation, which is typically every three years. I'm not sure if every other state does every three years for reevaluation, but you can request a meeting at any time. And it is for the benefit of your child to make sure they could be in the least restrictive environment or most restrictive environment that is conducive based on the service hours that your child may or may not need. And if they don't qualify for IEP services, then there's also Section 504. Exactly. Yeah, it was, um, they don't train you as much for behavior as you would think they might. Well, at least they didn't then. So behavior was the big shock of the first year, you know, as I remember it. Learning how to, con you know, deal with that and control that. Ooh, yeah, I most of the kids <laughs> I dealt with, they were all um, SLD. Um, mm -hmm. The behavioral kids, they were primarily more so close toward the administrative offices because of the meltdowns and blowups that they would have. And you got to make sure that you have the right people in place to do the proper restraints and all that when you're dealing kids that mm -hmm. are maybe considered BD or ED. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's not like how in the days when I was in school, because I could remember where kids that weren't sped, they got pulled out to those little trailers in the back. Yeah. And they weren't included in a uh, general population. And it's good to see now kids and schools being more inclusive instead of just sticking the kids down in the basement on those trailers and pretty much saying, uh, we're not going to include them and we're just going to leave them separately. So it's good to see that kids that are sped are being included now in um, general education classes. So that way that stigma can be destigmatized of being a kid in special ed. All right. Lots, lots of changes since the seventies. That's you talked about one of the biggest ones right there. The special ed laws. Yeah. Yeah. Because prior to those laws getting passed, it was almost as if, you know, you were non-existent and this was back when the R word used to be used. Of course, we can't use that oh, yeah. now because that is politically incorrect. We've since evolved and became better as a society. And um, and how I was looking at the documentary a couple of years ago, Crip Camp, about the rise in the disability movement with people that have uh, physical disabilities and how it was during the 70s and the 80s 
during that movement in uh, Northern California around Berkeley at Cal, how the seeds were planted then that later gave us the ADA Act of 1990 to where you see now accessible facilities and things for those that are you know, physically disabled, you know, I'm not sure if you can say handicapped now, because I believe that's considered uh, politically incorrect, but the physically disabled and how, you know, we've made strides overall to include others and not just have it be, we're on this side, you're on this side, there's no, no mixing. How many years did you stay in education? Um, for me, I was in for, I want to say three years. I started out as an educational assistant, then ended up maybe about um, a year later enrolling in a master's program for my master's in education. Ended up um, teaching sped reading and writing for fifth graders and then ended up getting out because, you know, at the end of the day, I just really didn't have a strong passion and desire for it. But also, too, you know, with the amount of work that teachers do, especially the extra stuff you have to do as a sped teacher, where you're expected to not only have your lesson plans, get ready for observation, make sure your students meet the data, the objectives when you do your quarterly testing. But also on top of that, you make sure your IEP caseload is good too. It's, it's it's just a lot of the demands that SPED teachers are asking for. And, you know, I remember one year I ended up dropping maybe two, $300 at an educational supply store, getting things for my classroom. Then of course, if you're a teacher, you're not going to get reimbursed for that. You may get lucky mm -hmm. if you maybe get a quarter or something, but you're not getting reimbursed everything is coming out of your pocket. And um, I think that's why sidebar Abbott elementary has been received so well, because it kind of putting the mirror up at the issues that's going on with our educational system in the U S and how teachers, for all the work that they do, the pay doesn't reflect it. And you're expected to wear many hats as a teacher. You're expected to be nurse, guidance counselor, friend, pastor, you know, cafeteria, because, you know, some of these kids come from situations that, you know, like, man, how do you make it? You know, I had one student one time where I had some leftover breakfast cereals in my closet and he was putting them in the backpack. And that kind of let me know maybe there's some food insecurity going on at home. Yeah. You know, where some kids having to get like a weekend mm -hmm. package of meals just to make it through the weekend because, you know, school is the only time that they eat. And it's sad yeah. when you have situations like that. Well, you brought up a thought. I think that people that make laws about education, legislators should be required to shadow a teacher for X amount of days, you know, go through their daily life. And I think it'd be good for family members if, you know, schools would set up some type of way where people could come and actually shadow, you know, watch what the teachers actually do. It's one thing to tell what the teachers do, but when you see what they do and, and then you see the amount of time they're having to spend after the bell rings, then you begin to understand how um, detailed and how much it takes to really do the job. But yeah. the people making the laws, 
a lot of the laws, they really don't have any business doing it. And they should have to go and watch what a teacher does in depth. I would say, yeah, I would say you teach for a day, you try writing a lesson plan and mm -hmm. let it be when you have a surprise observation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Boy, I made, and, yeah, I made sure that I was on top of my A game when I had a surprise observation because I made sure to tell the kids, hey, <laughs> I may be getting observed this week. So if y'all do this, this, uh -huh. and this, I give Pizza. you X amount of time and uh -huh. free time on the computer if y'all do good doing this observation because uh, yeah. my contract renewal depends on that. That's <laughs> nothing about teaching that they do not tell you. It is uh, not like you are set, made in the shade. You yeah. can be asked, um, well, you didn't meet your numbers with testing, and we are not going to renew your contract for next school year. So you're on a contract by contract yeah. basis. So you got to be putting out and performing or else you getting cut. And then when it's the observation's over, the kids say, did we do good? And you say, I don't know yet because I ain't got back the results. I'll let you know what the results are. But you, you know, you tell them that in a way, but it's all it's always, you know, I gotta get the results back for a buy the pizza, you know. Mm. I think you did good, you know. Yeah. It's, but like I say, the public really needs to not just hear, but be able to come in and watch and, and live in the teacher's shoes for five days, you know. See them go home with the papers and make the phone calls and all the meetings. And then let's talk about you making laws and so forth. Right. And then if you know teachers, you know, if you got anything to spare, if they have like something that they want to do for that classroom, you know, give them a little something because, you know, some teachers, you know, because the pay's not glamorous. A lot have a lot of them have to moonlight with second jobs in order to supplement the teaching income. And some school districts and some parts of the U.S. don't get paid during the summers. So some teachers have to get a summer job in order to keep themselves afloat until the school year. Um, thankfully, you know, I worked in school districts where, you know, you got paid in, during the summer. But, you know, unfortunately, that's not the case, you know, for all teachers. But I'm just saying that to say, be kind to a teacher, be nice to a teacher and let them enjoy their summer vacation. Because I made, I made sure when I was teaching, once that bell rang and I was outside them school walls, yeah. if kids saw me, I'm like, I don't know you. We don't exist. <laughs> See you later, alligator. We, you, you, don't, you don't exist. When I go outside, when that last day of school hits, and we all yes. do that teacher wave and say, bye, well, have bye. a nice summer. It's almost yeah. like when the cat's away, the mice will play. And no squealing tires on the parking lot, right? No, 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 no. Because I remember, you know, when I was teaching chaperoning a field trip and right. how, you know, now they have it set up where, you know, if there's a child that may not be able to go, you know, for financial reasons or whatever, what have you, they have scholarships now, you know, to help kids, you know, that would want to go on a field trip, but maybe for financial reasons or another couldn't go back in my day it was where if your folks didn't have the money to go you didn't go and also yeah. if you didn't have the money to go get something to eat if the bus was gonna stop at insert fast food restaurant here you got whatever lunch that was packed in that white bag <laughs> it was a ham and cheese a bologna and cheese 
uh, carton of milk. Yeah. If you were really fancy, it was probably apple juice, but more than likely it was a carton yeah. of milk, either white or chocolate, <laughs> and, and an apple. And I'm right. like, mama, Gotta have make an apple. sure you give me some money so that mm -hmm. way I can get insert fast food restaurant here because I didn't want to be the only person eating that school lunch yeah. on a field trip. <laughs> Because to me, that was the height of the whole field trip. You got, yeah. the, you got the $20. Like, man, I'm going to get me a combo today. I'm not going to get a Happy Meal no more. <laughs> you walk up to the counter proudly with your 19 year old self, like, uh, let me get the number one. Yeah. How do you want it? <laughs> Super size. Yes. And you proudly give the $20 bill. You go with your tray. You smiling, walking, having a good time. Like everything all right. And you really was doing some if you went to a buffet doing a school field trip. And now, if you're from the mm -hmm. South, you know these three buffet places well. Shoney's, Breakfast Buffet, mm -hmm. Top yeah. Tier, the French Toast Sticks, Don't At Me, At Your Mama. Old Country Buffet. Old Country Buffet. I never had yeah. Old Country Buffet, but I always heard good things about it. And number three, Ryan's Steakhouse. Oh, Ryan's yeah. Steakhouse. There was a Ryan Steakhouse in my hometown. It's since been converted into a Sheets gas station. And yeah. how it was the go-to spot after church that go to Corral and assert your local barbecue spot. And how, you know, the desserts were always warm and fresh. The meat bar was always placed correctly. And how you knew it was going to be good if you knew a certain cook was going to be working. Just like how when you would go to your local Waffle House after midnight, and you knew that they were shorthanded that day, that your food was going to be okay because they were shorthanded and the sanitation grade was below 80. <laughs> yeah, they did away with the Ryans around these parts and Shoney's. And when the pandemic hit, they're, they're mm -hmm. closed. There were only two here in Memphis, and they're both closed. I really missed the Shoney's. That was some good eating. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Shoney's was top tier because we had one in my hometown we would go there for the breakfast buffet but when mm -hmm. I went to Tennessee a couple of years ago I saw a Ryan Steakhouse out in uh, Seaverville Tennessee mm -hmm. which is in eastern Tennessee which is over by Pigeon Forge Gatlinburg aka Dolly Parton neck of the woods and how you know it was like childhood memory unlocked and how man I could just remember spending so many Sundays and family gatherings at Ryan's and how, you know, being from the South, you know, you and I, we can both relate how being from the South and being a Southerner, you get a true sense of comfort, you know, in a lot of things because, you know, most some places in the South is all about community, all about togetherness, close knit, you know, and how, you know, with the movement that you started that led to the Tina Turner Museum is all about community and wanting to show love to one of their very own. Yeah, and just let me encourage everybody, no matter what your dream is, follow your heart. Because that's what happened to me. I didn't listen to the negatives. I had a lot of people just, you know, give me up as a friend and, you know, write me off as crazy with some of my dreams. But I, I was, I stayed true to my heart. And so whatever your dream is out there, whatever you're trying to do, search your heart, follow your heart. Because after all, it's going to be you that has to live with your heart in the end anyway. So that's really important. That's critical. Right. 
And before we conclude the interview, do you have any shout outs, thank yous you want to give? And also plug where people can find more information about the museum or the Tina Turner fan club. Yeah, I want to thank you. And I want to thank uh, Rashawn um, up in New York for, you know, hooking us up and everything. I want to thank all the people that um, li will listen to the interview. And um, what was that you were asking me? Something else there. So plug where folks can find more information about the Tina Turner Museum and also the Tina Turner Fan Club that you have on Facebook, if they want to. Okay, the Tina Turner follow. Fan Club that I have on Facebook is called Tina Turner Fans, Nutbush, Tennessee, Haywood County Chapter. Tina Turner Fans, Nutbush, Haywood County, Tennessee Chapter. You can also follow my personal Facebook wall, uh, Keith Alton, A-L-T-O-N, Gambill. I post a lot of Tina things on there. You can go to West Tennessee Delta Heritage Center FB page and Tina Turner Museum FB page. Those are just a few of the uh, places to go. All right. And you can catch this interview wherever you stream podcasts and also on YouTube at youtube.com slash beyond the album cover. So ladies and gentlemen, let's give a big thank you and a big round of applause for Mr. Keith Gambill for coming on to beyond the album cover. Keith, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for coming on and look forward to speaking to you again in the future. Uh, thank you. Look forward to talking to you too as well, Terrell. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, sir.